0: I remember telling myself, don't get comfortable. This is not your home. This is not your home. I was mentally scarred. I was thinking about it all. I was in my head too much. Thinking about where it is I went wrong. There was demons to my right. There was demons to my left. There were demons in my head. How was the demon sleeping in bed. I felt like I was losing my mind. I didn't feel right. Door closed all the time. Bright light wouldn't let me sleep at night. I was looking for the moon. I was looking for the sky. I was losing sight of time. I was looking out of slot, losing hope. I was in a rabbit hole. I was surrounded by many, but I didn't trust any. I felt like I was going crazy. These walls started trying to persuade me, telling me stories about the people they broke before me. I told myself, don't get comfortable. This is not your home. This is not your home. But it started to feel like home. I started getting comfy. Those walls were my sanctuary, and there I felt lovely. How there, everything was changing. I had already been left in the past. I was getting used to my new life. Told myself time will pass.
1: This is Not in Isolation, Voices of Youth. I am your host, Ronaldo Vieda. And today's episode is a continuing conversation on Khalif Browder. Um, Khalif was 16 years old when he was arrested in the state of New York. He spent three years inside of Rikers Island, uh, 700 days of which he spent in solitary confinement. Um, Khalif's story is not an anomaly in our country He is someone who experienced the worst that the system has to offer um, throughout his life, growing up in the foster care system, um, being arrested, and ultimately uh, taking his life because there was no adequate mental health support services. There wasn't any support at all for Khalif. Um, With me today is uh, Soy Pineda, my co-host and we're going to talk about bell reform and alternatives to solitary confinement. What works and what
2: doesn't. What's good? What's good? Thank you for that. We got straight into it today, huh? <clears throat> um, some sway. Uh, you know, advocate, youth organizer, born and raised in Orange County. Um, you know, me, Ronnie, kind of met doing similar work. You know, we crossed paths for a reason, because I think... When we think about it, you know, mentioning Khalif Browder is kind of like, I mean, it sounds dark when I say like this, but like this poster child, right, for what went wrong. Um, And it's like the face of all those people that are forgotten that go through similar experiences. And me or you could have kind of had a similar story that Khalif had if there had not been intervention, if there had not been support you know, which um, he was unfortunate enough not to receive. And, you know, that's kind of where we're here today, you know, to highlight that. Um, you know, easily myself or you or a lot of the people that we work with can be testimonials as to what can happen if there is intervention, if there is support, if there is alternatives. You know, and at the same time, we're uplifting the voices of those who kind of have been forgotten, have been overlooked. But I think, you know, today specifically we did want to talk about alternatives. Where do we go from here? How do we move forward? Or how do we prevent stories like Khalif's to to repeat? And you know, yeah, Khalif's story triggered a tidal wave of changes at the state level in New York and across the country. You know, it's important to continue to highlight these changes that are being pushed by organizers and advocates dedicated to ensuring that more young people get the services that they deserve. You know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One story like Khalifs is one too many. Um, so what are we going to do to address this? And, you know, I mean, we could start off with, you know, the simple one. We can start off with kind of how we see, you know, the carceral system, mass incarceration being a a business, and a big business at that, a huge one, you know. No, that's it, It and it hasn't slowed down. Um, You know, thinking about, you know, you could be, for his... In his case, Rice allegedly stealing a backpack, you know, and being incarcerated for that long. And, you know, in a perfect world, he would have been able to come home, especially if his folks had money. You know, let's look at bail, you know. That's kind of a privilege, you know, uh, for those who can afford it. And it's kind of like this, like slap in the face for poor people, you know, because, okay, I mean, if a crime was that serious, right, you'd just be sitting there. You know, but they give us the option of being able to borrow our way out of being incarcerated, right? But we know that that's not going to benefit anybody that's, you know, working class, struggling, you know, trying to make ends meet. And so, bell reform, I think, is an essential uh, uh, stepping stone towards, like, you know, abolition, towards ending mass incarceration, you know. It's always been, like, a money money game. It's always been, you know, for-profit, and we see that this kind of this tool is always kind of inaccessible to to certain people, certain demographics. Whether you want to look at that from a socioeconomic status or the racial lens, it's always seems like it's kept out of reach of certain people and it's like always an option that can be taken from for certain other people. Um but you know, when when Khalif's case was making nationwide headlines, I think the 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 conversation around bell reform was heightened. someone stayed in a backpack, did not deserve to be incarcerated for the time that they were in there. You know, Khalif didn't deserve any of that, let alone being in solitary confinement for almost two years. You know. <clears throat> And I think, uh, you know, that's just, it's not going to be the the end-all, be-all. You know, there are all the alternatives, and I think we'll get into those as well. But, you know, I think that's one way to start.
1: I mean, it stands uh, as a testament. Um, this nation prides itself on profits over people. Um, when I think about bell reform, um, I think about low-income families Sometimes head of households who are criminalized for very minor crimes, misdemeanors, and who cannot afford to pay, you know, the hundred dollar, two hundred dollar bail, to be able to come home um, and sit there throughout their uh, court proceedings, waiting to come home. Um, and when I think about alternatives, specifically as it pertains to Khalif Browder and his situation. I think about diversion programs, right? I think about restorative and transformative justice practices. I think about adequate access to mental health support. I think about continuity of care and what that looks like. Um, I also think about just the basics of what youth need. Um, During my incarceration and being able to see youth transform before my eyes, all it really was was consistency. It was love. It was accountability, compassion, grace. The basic things that youth crave and need right we all need love and nurturing in order for us to grow and Khalif was a bright young man who received the complete opposite the state of New York told him that the correct thing to do was to put him in a cell by himself for 700 days That was their response. That was their way of, this is the care that we're going to give you. This is how we view you. This is how we perceive you. And therefore, we think this is adequate. This is what their response should be. A punitive one, right? It's not rooted in healing. It's not rooted in trying to uh, help Khalif overcome what he is going through. It's rooted in, we're going to beat you down even further and further exasperate whatever it is that you have going on mentally, because you don't deserve these resources. You're not worthy of these resources. And when you look at statistics, 66% of young men who are in juvenile detention facilities meet the criteria for a mental health disorder.
2: You look at, like, where they grew up, you know, they come from a low-income, poverty-stricken area. That number has increased, you know. And that's oftentimes a reality for, you know, a lot of our young men, young men of color who don't really grow up with much uh, access to, you know, even just guidance, you know, even good role models. They walk outside and they don't see luxury. They don't see nice cars. They don't see... You know, a beautiful community. You you see, like sometimes we're plagued with violence and drugs and law enforcement presence. You know, and it, it's it's real. It's too real, and it can't be ignored. You know.
1: I think you bring up a valid point when you put it into perspective, because Khalif was a foster youth um, from a young age. Him and his brothers were all foster youth. But take into account the environments that are our realities when we step outside. um, We're in survival mode. We're literally just trying to make it another day. And it's hard to be able to deal with trauma, to deal with mental health, to deal with whatever is going on within you when you're constantly feeling like your back is against the wall and just have to fend for yourself. And solitary confinement, the way that it's been used in juvenile detention facilities, is literally the only response. It's the first response that they have when someone acts out or misbehaves or when they can categorize your behavior as you know, not following staff direction or whatever it may be. You know, they are they can always find a way to contextualize your behavior and say that it merits solitary confinement. It's a problem because the people who staff these facilities, they are trained to think this way. It's embedded in the culture. It's embedded in how they operate. And when we talk about alternatives, I think community-based organizations. I think community advocates. I think credible messengers. The People who truly can relate and understand to what that young person is going through that's the best way that you can address the problem at its root it's not through law enforcement it's not through probation it's through the people that can truly reach our young people because there needs to be common ground there needs to be mutual understanding and more importantly that is what paves the way for there to be accountability and vulnerability to have these meaningful dialogues and conversations of their trauma and their personal experiences and be able to challenge some of the belief systems that were ingrained in us growing up. Um, You know, I think about patriarchy and toxic masculinity, but, it has to be rooted in holistic mental health practices. It has to be rooted in the people who truly care for the welfare of our youth. Because the state is in charge with caring for the welfare of our youth, but they fall short every single time.
2: You know, these, these facilities, these prisons, these jails, these detention centers, they're not a place for rehabilitation. You know, you take somebody, and you say, <clears throat> "What you did merits you being removed from your community entirely and placed in this facility, where you're going to be dehumanized." But you don't give them the tools to correct, you know, those errors. You know,
1: tools to right their
2: wrongs. Yeah, and some oftentimes too. Sometimes people are in there like for something they didn't even commit, didn't even do. So there's this also account for that. But you take people. You know, these are human beings. You one right. You you erase their name. You give them a new identity, that booking number. Right. That's what you're gonna be. That's who you are now. And you put them in a facility, and you constantly remind them of the things that they did wrong, or things that you believe that they did wrong. And you don't give them any kind of means to 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 do something different with themselves, you know. There are some facilities that have, like, certain programs that are coming in, but there's so far, few, and in between. The, the majority of the facilities that we see are just a place where people go and sit to be forgotten, to wither away, to be placed in a hyper-violent environment, you know. So, So there's no real, like, rehabilitation. There's no real, like... I don't believe people, you know, when you when you talk about paying your debt to society, right, doing your time, like you just sit, you sat there, and the people that are entrusted with, you know, providing your care, you know, they 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 just let you be forgotten. They let you sit there, and I think, as you mentioned, right, community based organizations, they they're the ones that are filling the gap. They're the ones with with little funding. Well, sometimes being understaffed, you know, but they're doing God's work out here, you know. They're really taking people that, you know, no disrespect anybody that comes from that, you know, I come from that same background, but you know, these these folks that are really out here, you know, advocating being aware of what, all the issues that are going on with the carceral system or with the state of this country entirely. And they're taking broken people, you know, or damaged people, or traumatized people and they they're doing this amazing healing work, you know. They're humanizing us once again when we sometimes forget that we deserve that (laughs) you know and there there there's job development programs there's like continuing education programs there's you know just even taking your own like testimony and applying it right being mentors being case managers whatever it is you know work yeah I think you know even like advocating for as you mentioned right holistic mental health like that was a new terminology that I was not aware of until I started going to community based organizations
1: shout out to underground grit though you know what I mean
2: (laughs) you know I don't think these things are undoable you know creating alternatives humanizing young people making sure that you know no one sits in solitary confinement for 700 days for something they didn't do that's not doable that's not undoable we can do better. You know, those of us who have come from that background, those of us who have, you know, been fortunate enough to be released and came back into our community wanting to do more, meeting, you know, advocates, you know, going to community based organizations, reentry programs. We know that there's a, when people, are willing enough to to look at look at us for not our biggest mistakes humanizes you know it, it puts in a perspective that you not only deserve a second chance but when you get that there's so much good that can come from that right when people invest in you when people are you know advocating for your mental health and supporting you through that reentry through that you know when you start turning a new leaf and when there's so many people that are rooting for you to do that, you know, so much good could come from it. You know, and I don't believe anybody's exempt from second chances. I don't believe anybody's exempt from redemption. You know, and I think, you know, there's good in everybody. And when you invest in it, when you nurture it, you know, when you care for it, there's so much, um, there's so much that we can learn even from people that, that we wouldn't necessarily take the chance to talk to. You know, people that have, come from, you know, solitary confinement, came from the shoe, lifers, you know, young people fighting life. Like, there's so much to learn in everybody, and I think when we take the time to invest in their growth, invest in their reentry, invest in their path, you know, we can start withering our way. We can start undoing, you know, those years and years, generations of trauma that kind of have plagued us and plagued our communities for a long time
1: couldn't agree with you more it's how we deconstruct these systems through community through these support systems i was able to self-actualize and transform my life and it's something that is very important when we talk about youth who are right now in solitary confinement
3: My name is Jenny Lutz. I'm an attorney with the Center for Children's Law and Policy, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit working to help protect the rights and the safety of young people. I'm also the director of one of our projects, which is called Stop Solitary for Kids. We work around the country to end the use of solitary confinement for all young people through resources, through training, and through other projects like this podcast. There's often a fundamental misunderstanding Of what solitary confinement actually looks like for young people. That's partly because it goes by other neutral sounding names like room confinement, seclusion, or separation, but it's also because most people don't think that this can be happening to young people, that we can be putting kids in solitary confinement, or that if it is happening, it's not like what we imagine solitary confinement is for adults. But the truth is that solitary confinement is happening to young people, it's happening across the country, and it's just as harmful as what we imagine happens for adults. Solitary confinement is putting children in cells smaller than the size of a parking space with no human contact for days, weeks, or even months. There's usually just a bed and a thin mattress nothing else in the cell or on the cell walls. There might be a tiny opening for light to come in, and food usually comes through a small slot-like opening in the door. We've even heard about kids being forced to use the bathroom in plastic bags if there isn't a metal toilet in the solitary cell. And this happens to one in three young people in jails or prisons. That's tens and thousands of young people a year. Solitary confinement also causes profound harm especially to young people or adolescents. It increases their risk of suicide and trauma. We know that half of suicides of young people inside jails or prisons happen in solitary confinement. Most young people in solitary don't get services, mental health treatment, drug and alcohol counseling, or even education that they're legally entitled to. There are also skills that teenagers should be learning during this period of their lives that allow them to become adjusted and capable adults. Those are skills like navigating relationships, making good decisions in the face of conflict, but no child can learn those skills locked up in a tiny isolation cell. We also know that solitary confinement affects kids of color, kids struggling with mental wellness, and LGBTQI plus youth more than others. On top of this, we know that solitary confinement doesn't work. The most common reason that jails and prisons give for using solitary is that some kids must be separated and locked down to keep everyone else safe or to teach them a lesson. This idea is part of a larger narrative, a false narrative, that young people who get caught up in the system, who are usually black and brown kids, are somehow more dangerous or less worthy of compassion. Just to use an example, most people listening today wouldn't lock their child in a closet or a small space for hours or days when they're experiencing difficulties or challenges and expect that young person to come out of that space having figured out better conflict resolution or behavioral skills on their own just by virtue of being isolated. When we put kids in solitary confinement, we're also teaching them the lesson that the person or the group who has the most control or force wins. And that's not the approach that we want any young person to have in the community when they may encounter conflict. So the goal of Stop Solitary for Kids is to take apart destructive practices like solitary, not only through laws and policies and court orders, but also by calling out the culture of incarceration, punishment, and racism that we see in the system around us and in the use of solitary confinement. And fortunately, there have been victories across the country where places have ended the use of solitary confinement for young people. It's possible. That means pushing jails, prisons, and judges to see that there are better ways. Those better ways are strategies like treating kids as human beings with potential, building relationships with young people, training staff to solve problems with their words and not physical force, getting mental health staff and therapists involved, and giving young people in custody meaningful activities to do and skills that make future opportunities like jobs or pursuing their education real opportunities for them. Many of these approaches also aren't just coming from advocates like Stop Solitary for Kids and our partners. Jails, prisons, and staff who work there are also saying, hey, there are other approaches that work better and that actually do make everyone safer. There are also young people who are speaking out who've been in solitary confinement and who can describe what would have worked better instead for them than solitary confinement. Our goal in this podcast series is to lift up the voices, expertise, and the vision of young people. We can't make these changes without them. This project is possible through support from Arnold Ventures and the Jacob and Valeria Langeloth Foundation. We would also like to thank the family of Khalif Browder, the Khalif Browder Foundation, and everyone who helps support Time, the Khalif Browder Story documentary series.
1: Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be joined by a juvenile LWAP, a former lifer who was tried and sentenced as a minor to life without parole in prison. This is a reminder that September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. While suicide prevention is important to address year-round, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month provides a dedicated time to come together around a difficult topic— because we can all benefit from honest conversations about mental health and suicide. One conversation can change a life. If you or someone you know is experiencing difficult or suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Hotline at 988. You are not alone.